Welcome to Cato Audio for October 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Cato Chairman Bob Levy lays out some areas of agreement among libertarians, conservatives, and liberals. Historian Brian Dimitrovic details some issues with inequality research. Cato's Chris Preble details the founders' view of military power. David Lampo makes the political case for supporting gay rights. And historian Robert McDonald explains why George Washington was so respected by his contemporaries. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Libertarians have something of, I think, a strained relationship with the process of voting. Many of them think it is useless. Many of them don't do it on principle. And many of them are perhaps tricked into voting for people who ultimately will then disappoint them. So we're going to talk a little bit about the libertarian vote here with David Bowes, executive vice president at the Cato Institute, and David Kirby, vice president at FreedomWorks, also an associate policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So the libertarian vote, there is some dispute about how large of a vote, voting block that is, and where that vote belongs, I suppose. So David Bowes, about how big is the libertarian vote broadly construed in the United States? Well, we have a great graphic in one of our papers on the libertarian vote that shows that it can be just any number you want. So let me suggest a few. Gallup does an analysis pretty much every year where they ask people two questions. One is like, do you think government is too big in our economy? And the other is, do you think government should be promoting traditional values or staying out of values? And when they do that, they get about 20 percent, 23 percent of the electorate giving a libertarian answer to both questions. And part of what's important about that is If you give the libertarian answer to both of those questions, you're kind of not exactly a liberal and not exactly a conservative, so you are something that's different. David and I, in our study, added a third question to make it a little bit tougher, and then we got about 15% libertarians. But if you want a bigger number, one way of thinking about libertarians in politics, and here we're not talking about people who read Reason Magazine or anything, we're talking about people who have a broadly libertarian view of the political world, we commissioned the Zogby poll to ask two questions. To half of their respondents, they asked the question, would you describe yourself as fiscally conservative and socially liberal? And I was just stunned that 59% said yes. But we asked half of them a different question, which was, would you describe yourself as fiscally conservative and socially liberal otherwise known as libertarian. And I knew that putting that word in there would push people away, but we still got 44%. So you can kind of say the potential libertarian vote is anywhere from 15 to 59%, but we probably stick to the 15 to 20% is the best estimate. At the very least, you can say that people do not object to that term very broadly. There are a lot of people who don't object to it. Very few people will pick it on a list of terms. But if you define it in this very broad way and ask people if it applies to them, then you can get a pretty big number. Well, you know, David, I recall when we first put out this estimate of 15 to 20 percent, a lot of scholars sort of voiced incredulity that how could that possibly be? I remember Matt Iglesias in 2006 saying that, no, no, libertarians can't be 15 to 20 percent. They're rounding error. 
0% of the American public was his estimation. But since we published this papers, more and more social scientists are beginning to probe what is going on with this group of libertarian voters that we describe. You know, one scholar that I found very interesting is Jonathan Haidt, who's at UVA and uh, now at NYU. And he's done some interesting research probing libertarian morality. And what he describes is that conservatives tend to reason from a place of loyalty and authority. Liberals tend to reason from a place of fairness. But libertarians are something different. They reason from a place of liberty. And that sort of validates the kind of polling data that we found with a sort of deeper look into decision making of voters. Where were libertarian voters during the Bush years? This was uh, 2000 and 2004 were pretty critical elections. I mean, they were very close. But can we say with confidence where libertarian voters were in those elections? Yeah, well, we found that libertarian voters in 2000 voted about 70% for George W. Bush, which made sense at the time. Certainly, Bush sounded more libertarian than the Democrat at that time. But between 2000 and 2004, given the Bush Republicans' increases in spending, their positions on civil liberties, many positions that were antithetical to libertarians' views, they swung away from Republicans in 2004 and then in 2006 again. We saw some evidence in 2008 that they swung back to John McCain, perhaps presciently thinking that Obama might be a disaster. And certainly in 2010, the libertarian energy of the Tea Party really played in a very critical role in that election. In 2008, we had uh, Ron Paul's candidacy, which was uh, dwarfed really by the 2012 candidacy of Ron Paul. For sure. Uh, so, David, w in 2008, I think Barack Obama made a strong appeal to a lot of libertarians and the things that he was saying. Well, first he said, I'm not Bush. And so that had a strong appeal to a lot of libertarians. He did say that Bush had been fiscally irresponsible, although that was a minor theme compared to I'm going to create national health insurance. And he did also talk about ending the war and protecting civil liberties and repealing Bush's unwarranted extensions of executive authority. And at least once on the campaign stump out in the Mountain West, he did say, if you're a libertarian conservative, you wouldn't like the civil liberties approach of the Bush administration. So he made some appeal that way. I do think to the extent that there were libertarians voting Democratic in that era, it was a reaction to the war, the overspending, the Federal Marriage Amendment, the Patriot Act, all of that more than an affirmative vote for Democrats. And David Kirby, you mentioned uh, the Tea Party in 2010. Of course, we got some inklings of the Tea Party in late 2008. That's right. And then it began, I guess, technically in 2009 with the passage of the stimulus. How did that activate, I guess, libertarian tendencies within the electorate? Or do we actually have more libertarians now than we did then? Yeah. In a new Cato paper, Libertarian Roots of the Tea Party, Emily Eakins and I actually trace the history of the Tea Party all the way back to the Ron Paul campaign in 2008. And we discover that the Tea Party has very strong libertarian roots. The group of people who were involved in the Ron Paul campaign really were the ones that provided a tremendous amount of energy into the early Tea Parties in 2009. And if you look at polling data, you find that libertarians are about half the Tea Party on many, many surveys. And it sort of is a different caricature than what you see in the liberal media when everyone says, oh, the Tea Party, it's so religious. It's a social conservative group. It's sort of like the religious right. But no, in the data, it shows very clearly the libertarian roots. And that was traced all the way back to the Ron Paul campaign of 2008. So in 2012, 
where do we expect the libertarian vote to go? It doesn't seem like they have many options. And uh, how likely are libertarians in any given election to just sit it out? Well, there's probably two demographics for 2012 that are worth paying attention to. Uh, the first is libertarian Tea Partiers, and the second is libertarian independents. Now, if 2012 turns out to be a turnout election where both sides are really locked in their position and it's a matter of getting your supporters out versus somebody else's supporters, then you really need the grassroots energy of people who care about the candidates to call their friends and motivate their neighbors to get out and vote. Now, the libertarian Tea Partiers have been the most reluctant to jump on to the Romney campaign. And in fact, if they do hold their nose and vote, it's probably going to be for Vice President Ryan and that other guy who's running partner. So Paul Ryan may well encourage libertarian Tea Partiers to turn out versus doing other things with their, their busy weekends. And that's an important thing to look at. The second is this group of libertarian independents. And David, in a blog post, looked at Washington Post data that showed that independents are a small slice of the electorate. And uh, among those who are truly undecided, not just independents, but undecided people who are, are going to be the swing voters, many of them are fiscally conservative or socially liberal based on their answers to questions. And so that slice of independents is really a key group to swing and they're more libertarian leaning in their tendencies. You talked about libertarians sitting it out or whatever. I think among self-conscious libertarians, like I say, the kind of people who read Reason Magazine or read the Cato website, there are a fair number of people who are likely to sit out an election to think voting is immoral or ineffective. Among this larger group of 15 or 20 percent of the electorate that we call libertarian, they actually vote at slightly higher levels than the public at large, probably because they're slightly better educated and more affluent. And it seems to me that the default for this vote is about 70 percent Republican. If Republicans don't screw up, they can get about 70 percent. These people are more willing to vote for a third-party candidate. They voted for Ross Perot more heavily and apparently for John Anderson more heavily way back in 1980, which always seems like it would be an opening for somebody like Gary Johnson, though I haven't really seen it yet. The question then is, are they fed up enough with Obama that they will vote Republican despite their misgivings about Romney, or is it possible that they will look at the record of Obama and the record of the Republicans when they were in power most recently and throw up their hands. But as I say, usually they do vote. David Kirby? One other thing to think about is uh, Senate candidates that have more libertarian tendencies. Uh, Rand Paul was a very exciting candidate for many libertarians. And in a few states, there are Ron Paul-like Senate candidates, uh, Jeff Flake in Arizona, Josh Mandel, who's in Ohio, Connie Mack in Florida. And while I wouldn't call those last two libertarian per se. They're sort of functionally libertarian in the sense that they're running on strong stances on cutting spending, lowering taxes, getting the federal government out of the business of entrepreneurship and out of the way of growth. And they're not talking about social issues. So in key states, you may find that Senate candidates who are more functionally libertarian are actually driving excitement from the grassroots that may push votes up ticket to Romney rather than having Romney pull uh, in traditional coattails. It doesn't seem that either Barack Obama or Mitt Romney are really trying to get the libertarian vote in any substantive way. And is their calculation, if you could read their minds, 
to simply take that vote for granted or argue it isn't worth getting or I'm going to lose more in the median here than grabbing some of these voters over here in the tail. I'd say that Paul Ryan may be a dawning recognition from the Romney campaign that they do, in fact, have a problem with libertarian voters and they need to reach out. Another piece of evidence from the convention was the way the Romney campaign handled Ron Paul supporters and Tea Partiers in the negotiation of the platform. You may have seen that a tremendous amount of the Freedom Platform's 12 planks got adopted by the GOP, including audit the Fed and consider a gold standard, two things that have been very important to Ron Paulers. So while the convention still had all the annoying, mind-numbing speeches that you'd expect from a political convention, there were at least some nods towards libertarian voters and Ron Paulers, even if uh, the energy was a toehold, if not a complete win. Yeah, I don't think your question is entirely right. I think Romney has been trying as inauthentically as it is, to sound like a good free marketer. He's going to repeal Obamacare. He's going to get spending under control. And on the Democratic side, although there's clearly a lot of big government talk over there, their convention talked a lot about abortion rights, which they would see as appealing to a segment of the libertarian vote. And they had a fair number of speakers talking about gay marriage. And the polls right now are showing Democrats with an 11-point advantage on social issues. So I do think the social issues is an appeal to relatively libertarian young people and independents that the Democrats are making while the Republicans try to appeal to the independent vote with the economic issues. David Kirby, you said that uh, in some research, liberals, conservatives, and libertarians reason differently. Mm -hmm. Do you sense that there is any attempt to make the kinds of appeals from either Obama or Mitt Romney that appeals to the way that libertarians think about things? Well, if you listen to Paul Ryan's speech at the convention, he started to use moral terms to describe the case for free enterprise. That may well be a nod towards that sort of research that shows, look, speaking in moral terms about the principle of liberty appeals to libertarian voters in a way that's sort of deep and different than just the economic calculation of how much debt we have tells a story that appeals in a deeper way. So you saw perhaps a little of that with Paul Ryan. I'm struggling to think of a way Obama's language, it just feels to me so stale at this point. It's just very repetitive that... uh, connects with libertarian voters. But David, I don't know whether you saw something from Obama. No, I think other than the social issue stuff, Obama has been very heavy on this community. We're all in this together. You didn't build that. That really is an anti-libertarian, anti-individualist pitch. And he clearly thinks that there is 51% of the electorate for a more communitarian argument. Gary Johnson, the two-term Republican governor of New Mexico, was in some debates, a couple of debates early on when the public, uh, by and large, really wasn't paying attention. And then he seemed to have gotten caught in the catch-22 of you have to show up in the polls, you have to raise this much money, and uh, you have to have appeared in some debates in order to get people to pay attention to you. So he's been promoting stories that say, oh, well, look, Gary Johnson could be the spoiler here. Is there any evidence that that might be the case? Well, Gary Johnson has failed, at least in the primaries, to really get a a following large enough to even get him invited to many of the Republican debates. So at least as of now, he just hasn't captured the imagination of enough voters to see 
that um, he's likely going to do better than any other libertarian candidate. And I believe 1% has been the, the highest threshold, David, of a libertarian candidate ever because you were on that campaign. Yes, I was. We had 1% back in 1980. Gary Johnson has a great record. I mean, he was a governor for two terms. He tried to reform drug laws. He tried to reform education. He vetoed 750 bills. And when he finished, he climbed Mount Everest. But he didn't catch on with the Republican electorate. And so far, I don't see his campaign taking off. I do think this 15 percent of libertarian voters are more open to third party candidates than most voters are. And we did find some evidence in our Zogby polling that the people who tend to vote for Libertarian Party candidates actually do hold Libertarian views. I always sort of wondered if they were just none of the above votes. And it turned out in in one state, Arizona, where the Libertarian Party got three or four percent in Senate and governor's races, we found that most of the people who voted for those candidates did have Libertarian views. So the Johnson campaign should be trying to find out where are these 15% of voters and target them. All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Uh, David Bowes, Executive Vice President of the Cato Institute, and David Kirby, Vice President at FreedomWorks and Associate Policy Analyst at the Cato Institute. You can read more of our reports uh, dealing with the Libertarian Vote at our website, cato.org. Conservatives and libertarians often agree... Liberals and libertarians often agree, but conservatives don't mind a little expanding executive power or crushing federalism when it suits their agenda, and liberals don't mind trampling civil liberties when it suits their agenda. Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute, drew out some of these distinctions at Cato University in July. So conservatives agree with us on some issues, liberals on others. And as you all know, the conservatives agree with us on domestic, regulatory, economic, fiscal, budget, tax, those kinds of issues. Liberals on issues like a more liberalized immigration policy, drug legalization, the right to same-sex marriage, uh, non-interventionist foreign policy. So is it uh, an indication of libertarian inconsistency that we agree with liberals sometimes and conservatives sometimes? It isn't, of course. It's an indication that liberals and conservatives are philosophically inconsistent. And to illustrate that, I want to suggest to you that one way of looking at the U.S. Constitution, or for that matter, looking at our whole system of government, is to focus on the last two provisions of the Bill of Rights, the Ninth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment. Of course, the Tenth Amendment tells us that the federal government can only exercise certain powers that are listed in the Constitution. And the amendment goes on to say, if the power isn't enumerated, if it isn't delegated to the national government, then it's reserved to the states, or depending on the provisions of state law, reserved directly to the people. So we have these express powers in Article 1, Section 8, 18 powers, things like power to coin money, declare war, regulate interstate commerce, uh, create uh, postal offices, etc. Now, libertarians and conservatives agree generally on this very tightly constrained view of federal powers, but there are a couple of key exceptions. One key exception is that conservatives, but not libertarians, are willing to federalize, and by that, of course, I mean assign responsibility to the federal government, a significant amount of both criminal law and civil law. If you want an example in the criminal law area, take a look at our totally feckless and futile war on drugs, for which there's no constitutional authority. There are only a a couple of crimes that are mentioned in the Constitution, you know, piracy and, and counterfeiting and treason. Beyond that, criminal law has been a state and local matter. But because conservatives believe that the war on drugs is very important to prosecute, they're willing to overlook the fact that there is no constitutional authority 
for prosecuting uh, the war on drugs. If you want an example in the civil law area, take a look at the outcry during the Obamacare debates for malpractice reform. Now, it may very well be that malpractice reform is a very important thing to do. I happen to think it is. But the question that, can, that libertarians ask is where in the Constitution is there authority for the federal government to get involved in malpractice reform? And if you ask the conservative, he says, um, it's a regulation of interstate commerce, the very same logic that the Obama administration advanced with respect to the constitutionality of Obamacare. If you know anything about malpractice, you know typically it's a patient living in a state that's suing a doctor that lives in the same state about an injury that occurred in the state where both of them live. So it's very difficult to imagine that morphing into a regulation of interstate commerce. And yet, conservatives are willing to overlook that fact because they believe that malpractice reform is a very important thing uh, to uh, see come to pass. So right now we have the federal government immersed in all sorts of matters that are not authorized by the Constitution. And that extends to everything from public schools to hurricane relief to our welfare system, our retirement system, medical care, family planning, even aid to the arts. See if you can find aid to the arts anywhere. Imagine it anywhere fitting within one of Congress's authorized uh, powers. So that's one area of difference between conservatives and libertarians. Another area in the powers area is that conservatives are much less anxious than libertarians about concentrating an awful lot of power in the executive branch, particularly in this post 9-11 trade-off between national security and uh, civil liberties. Libertarians remind their conservative friends that too much unchecked authority in one branch of government threatens the notion of separation of powers, which has been a cornerstone of the Constitution for two and a quarter centuries. So the administration, and I'm sorry to say, I mean, most particularly the George W. Bush administration, may not all by itself set the rules because that's not an executive function, that's a legislative function. And while the administration may prosecute infractions, the administration may not, after the fact, determine guilt or innocence, much less may the administration determine whether its own activities have comported with the dictates of the Constitution, because that is not an executive function, that is a judicial function. So that's the powers of government perspective, sort of uh, grounded on the 10th Amendment and the separation of powers doctrine. Now, I also mentioned another amendment, the 9th Amendment, that addresses not powers, but rights. And what it says to us is that the listing of certain rights in the Constitution doesn't mean that those are all the rights that we have. We have all kinds of rights that existed before the Constitution was written, even before the government was formed. And as Roger pointed out, the 9th Amendment uses the word retain. You can't retain what you didn't... Uh, already have. Now, this provision in the Ninth Amendment, this focus on all of these rights that we have, this imposes another powerful discipline on federal behavior, because what it means is that even if the federal government complies with the Tenth Amendment and only exercises the powers that are enumerated in the Constitution, the Ninth Amendment instructs that even that limited list of powers cannot be exercised in a manner which violates our rights. And if you want to know which rights can't be violated, the Ninth Amendment instructs that it's not just the rights that are laid out in the Bill of Rights, speech, religion, freedom from uh, unreasonable searches and the like. It's those rights to be sure, but it's also the very, very long list of unenumerated rights, which in the libertarian view would include, for example, the right to gamble or, for that matter, the right to smoke marijuana. Now, notice that the presumptions in the Ninth and Tenth Amendment are exactly opposite one another. If you capture that, if you understand that, then you understand the entire structure of the federal system. The Tenth Amendment says if the power isn't there, the government doesn't have it. The Ninth Amendment is just the reverse. 
If the right isn't there, that doesn't mean that we don't have it. We have this long, long list of rights predating the Constitution, predating the formation of the uh, U.S. government. So if you wanted to identify a single constitutional provision that most distinguishes the uh, libertarians from conservatives, it would probably be the Ninth Amendment. The conservatives treat the Ninth Amendment, and here I use a term coined by former Judge Robert Bork, as an inkblot. He said the Ninth Amendment should be ignored. Nobody knows what it means. It's as if somebody spilled ink on the portion of the amendment that would have identified all of these unenumerated rights that the libertarians tell us we have. Well, the libertarians don't treat the Ninth Amendment as an inkblot. They treat it as if it means something. When the economic pie gets bigger, opportunities for all of us to get wealthier increase. But when the pie shrinks, for one to grow wealthier, others must become poorer. So many researchers focus on inequality often miss this key insight. Brian Dimitrovic is chairman of the Department of History at Sam Houston State University and author of The Left's Dubious History of Income Inequality. He spoke at the Cato Institute in August. Four years into the failed recovery from the Great Recession, we now know what the 2012 election is going to be about. Incredibly, it is going to be about economic fairness. That's right, not about recovery, not about growth, not about solving the problem, which is the 800-pound gorilla in the room, namely the puny state of ex-government GDP expansion, not to mention jobs, that this nation has been suffering with since the horrendous run of five straight down quarters during the collapse of 2008-2009. Forget about all that, all those real concerns, even as they are as great as we've faced in three generations. The question at hand is the two parties prepared to nominate their candidates, and this is care of the incumbent president, is whether the rich are getting more than their fair share in our straitened circumstances. Until the Republicans truly change the terms of this debate towards the clear alternative, economic growth, we're heading for a referendum on inequality come November. How it could have possibly come to thus is a story for another day. It does, after all, represent one of the great episodes of changing the subject in recent American political history. Instead, we come here today to talk about the research, the academic research, that lies at the bottom of the consensus on inequality at the center of the president's worldview and that the Democrats expect the electorate to take as a given. I speak of the academic research put in lights in the opening passages of President Obama's first budget of early 2009, the research that actually came to scoot so far out of the ivory tower that it gave the slogan to the Occupy Wall Street movement. That slogan being, we are the 99%. I speak, of course, of the iconic modern research on income inequality that put out in 2003 by the French economist Thomas Piketty and his counterpart Emmanuel Saez, now of Berkeley, in an article in the Quarterly Journal of Economics called Income Inequality in the United States, 1913 to 1998. Here it is. Now, on the release of that research, Piketty and Saez soon met a formidable challenge in the form of Alan Reynolds' Relentless counter-account of who gets what in the contemporary American economy. Allen's essential book of 2006, Income and Wealth. Allen and Piketty Saez sparred a little bit back then in the years before the Great Recession in the wake of Income and Wealth, with Allen landing all necessary punches. But who knew then that the Piketty Saez paper would soon take on a huge new life of its own after the recession hit, flogged by a progressive president and made the security blanket of the most significant protest movement since the 1960s in the form of Occupy Wall Street. Because the Piketty-Sayas research has taken on an influence in our politics and even social life 
far beyond all reason in recent years, I took it upon myself to add to Allen's critiques, indeed to emphasize some of his essential corrections in the paper just issued with the Laffer Center for Supply-Side Economics. The paper I wrote last month is thick with historical narrative about how inequality has always been well understood in American political economy, actually better than today, even in the battle days of the robber barons and Andrew Mellon. Indeed, my paper is at pains to point out that the country was pretty good long before the income tax ever rolled around in 1913 at crafting public policy that made sure that the baby was not thrown out with the bathwater. Policy was constructed such that inequality would be kept at bay as growth was maximized. The results weren't too shabby. From the ratification of the Constitution to the foundation of the income tax in 1913, we got a 100-fold real increase in gross domestic product, coupled with the invention of the mass middle class. But rather than being the historian here today, I want to underscore one terribly fatal methodological weakness in the Piketty-Saez research that has never been corrected, let alone addressed, and even by Emmanuel Saez's own admission. This is the simple fact that Piketty and Saez, in the main, use pre-tax income as their central datum, their analytical reference point. Pre-tax income. Here it is in Piketty and Saez's own words from 2003. Quote, income, according to our definition, is computed before individual income taxes and individual payroll taxes, but after employers' payroll taxes and corporate taxes. Let's forget about the latter part of that definition having to do with corporate income. John Cochran, referencing, as he calls it, the Piketty Sayers sausage factory, has explained well enough why imputing corporate income to individuals is one tricky endeavor. And anyway, corporate income tax rates really haven't changed all that much over the decades. The take-home line in the Piketty Sayers definition is this, quote, again, income, according to our definition, is computed before individual income taxes. Now, the big discovery in the Piketty Sayers research was that over the course of the 20th century, income inequality in the United States has followed an up-down-up pattern. In the teens and the 1920s, income inequality was high. It careened down by the 1940s, stayed low in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, then shot back up to 1920s levels in the 1980s, 90s, and then 2000s. The killer correlation that Piketty and Sayers were able to identify with, with this pattern was that the marginal rate of the income tax varied inversely with inequality this whole time. When the marginal rate was low, 25% in the 1920s, inequality was high. When the marginal rate of the income tax was high, between 70% and 94% in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 1970s, inequality was low. And then when the marginal rate was low again, 50% and less in the 1980s and beyond, inequality bounced back up. The intuitive conclusion one draws from this sequence, and in Piketty and Saez, it is explicit, could not be clearer. In periods of high taxation, the income of the rich goes disproportionately down, and in periods of low taxation, the income of the rich goes disproportionately up. Somehow, it has gotten lost in the shuffle that none of these differences has anything to do with rich individuals actually paying taxes. It seems that what Piketty and Saez are telling us is that when taxes are high, inequality is low, because the government exacts the riches' money from them for public purposes. And it seems in Piketty and Saez that when taxes are low, the government refrains from laying its hands on the rich's income, and the rich therefore make out like bandits. But none of this whatsoever is taking place, given that fateful definition of income that Piketty and Saez are using. Remember, their unit of analysis is pre-tax income. 
When the rich's income fell in the 40s through the 1970s, it wasn't because the government was taking it with 70% to 94% income tax rates. It's because I income was not reported to begin with. Conversely, when the rich's income soared in the 1920s and in the 1980s and beyond, as tax rates were lowered, this represented an enormous new presentation of income to the government on the part of successful individuals. Indeed, it became available for taxation. You see the deadly problem with the Paquetti-Saez data sets. It is fatally compromised by a bias. In eras of high taxes on the rich, the rich will obviously scramble to arrange things such that their taxable compensation comes in low. After all, if they arrange things for taxable compensation to come in high, they'll get nailed by tax rates north of 70%, and vice versa during periods of low taxes. Then the rich will not bother so much to prevent their real income from being represented as taxable income because income isn't taxed so much anymore. In sum, the awful bias in the Paquetti-Saez data set is this. High tax eras make the rich's taxable income far less than their real income, and low tax eras make the rich's real income far closer to their taxable income. Therefore, comparing taxable income as opposed to real income over the decades tells you nothing. The founders were keenly aware of the danger of a standing military force. Madison viewed state power suspiciously, and the impulse to war, he said, was among the most dangerous to individual liberty. Christopher Preble, vice president for defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute, contrasted the founders' views to that of many modern politicians at Cato University in July. Early Americans believed that standing armies and endangerment of liberty went hand in hand. As Madison stated during the Constitutional Convention, a standing military force with an overgrown executive will not long be safe companions to liberty. The means of defense against foreign danger have been always the instruments of tyranny at home. Among the Romans, it was a standing maxim to excite a war whenever a revolt was apprehended. Throughout all Europe, the armies kept up under the pretext of defending have enslaved the people. Madison, he looked upon war, it was kind of a petri dish for growing, for expanding state power at the expense of the individual. Of all enemies of public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. No nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. And Madison was hardly alone. As Bruce Porter writes in War and the Rise in the State, the vast majority of America's landowning aristocracy had an almost congenital distrust of standing armies, which their ancestors had for generations identified with despotism. They glorified instead the yeoman militia, linked to the land and closely tied to local interests. Critical to avoiding the need for a standing army was the Constitution's provision that Congress, not the executive, would have the authority to declare war. Madison explained the rationale in a letter to Thomas Jefferson. The Constitution supposes what the history of all governments demonstrates, that the executive is the branch of power most interested in war and most prone to it. Yet the Constitution has accordingly, with studied care, vested the question of war in the legislature. Madison later saw this provision as perhaps the most important one of the entire document. In no part of the Constitution is more wisdom to be found than the clause which confides the question of war or peace to the legislature and not to the executive department. And not to be forgotten, George Washington in his farewell address warned his countrymen to avoid the necessity of overgrown military establishments which are inauspicious to liberty but particularly hostile to Republican liberty. 
Now, whenever I give this presentation, and I have many times, I'll admit, people say these sentiments, these are perhaps unnecessarily unwieldy. The line you often hear is we don't really need 535 secretaries of state. One is bad enough. Perhaps it's even dangerous to believe in these kind of constraints. But as a matter of fact, if you look back at the history of this country, it was as much by, by circumstances, by design, that the, the foreign and military policy founded on, in Jefferson's immortal words from his first inaugural, peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. That vision survived and thrived in North America for a very long time. In fact, I find it all the more remarkable that the founders retained their skepticism of military power and deliberately constrained the power of the new federal government, given that the threats that were facing them then, in the 18th and early 19th century, were so much greater than the threats we are confronting today. If you doubt that, consider, in the time of the Constitutional Convention, you had the British Empire to the north in Canada, you had Spain lodged in France, you had the French and British navies plying the seas, impressing, that is to mean, enslaving unfortunate seamen who were uh, happened to get caught up in their net. And on top of all that, you had Native American tribes constantly raiding the edges of the frontier. They were, of course, anxious to halt the encroachment of the Anglos on their land. And this was the state of affairs when this Constitution was drafted. And again, part of the rationale for the Constitution was that the Articles of Confederation weren't strong enough and yet, we have the military provisions of the Constitution were, I think, in retrospect, or certainly relative to where we are today, quite limiting. And there are several reasons why Americans were rather successful at staying out of wars for about the first 150 or so years of our history. They had little need for a large military, as the framers of the Constitution had hoped. And again, when Congress saw fit to declare war, which it did from time to time, it did so, it made the necessary provisions, raised the necessary numbers of men and material, and then sent the men home when the war was over. It was not simply ideology and a commitment to the letter and spirit of the Constitution that enabled the founders to do this. For one thing, the security situation did improve. In the span of about 20 years, in uh, the dawn of the, 20, uh, the first 20 years of the 19th century, the United States had convinced three European powers to largely quit uh, the U.S. portion of North America. Of course, Jefferson bought off the French with the Louisiana Purchase. Americans prevailed over the British in the War of 1812. Some people dispute whether it was prevailing, but whatever. And, of course, the Spanish were uh, bought off. They ceded Florida in the adams onis Treaty of 1819. And after that, the European powers pretty much left us alone. They had lots of reasons for doing that. They were desperately, they were tired from the Napoleonic Wars. They were worried that adventures abroad would distract them from their troubles at home. All good reasons. And the good fortune, really, for the United States was that the young nation developed during this peculiar period in human history had a few wise leaders who had the sense to take advantage of this splendid isolation and build an enduring nation state. Of course, the greatest threat to the Republic in terms of military came not from foreign threats, but from the Civil War that remains the costliest war in our history. And as I said, they did occasionally engage in wars. Americans still clung to this philosophy espoused by the founders that free nations possess small professional militaries and strive to avoid 
foreign wars, even as they, as we, are happy to profit from foreign trade and otherwise to serve as an example to the world. And this pattern persisted even into the 20th century, even as the United States became involved in far larger wars in far distant lands. It is an axiom of American politics that most Republicans and conservatives are not only anti-gay, but they have capitulated to an anti-gay agenda formulated and pursued by the religious right for the past several decades. David Lampo makes the case that support for gay rights by Republicans and conservatives is consistent with individual liberty and limited government and will pay political dividends to the GOP down the road. Lampo is author of A Fundamental Freedom, Why Republicans, Conservatives, and Libertarians Should Support Gay Rights. He made his case at the Cato Institute in July. I completed the first draft of this in the... uh spring of 2011, just as the early Republican presidential primary process was getting underway, and the timing, I think, was uh, quite good. Even then, though, it was apparent that that field of Republican presidential candidates were going to be the most outspoken anti-gay field of candidates ever. Michelle Bachman, for example, blamed the existence of gay people for not one, but two natural disasters last year, both a hurricane and an earthquake. Newt Gingrich, who's had two mistresses and three wives, talked about the sanctity of traditional marriage. And Rick Perry charged that President Obama was conducting a war on religion simply because he allows gays to serve in the military, but forbids children from praying or celebrating Christmas. While most people find such remarks amusing, if a bit wacky, they are designed to whip up hatred against gays and lesbians in order for these candidates, these particular candidates, to grab a bigger chunk of the Christian right voters who make up a large portion of the Republican base. Now, this kind of rhetoric, of course, has been going on for years before this presidential race started. And it went into overdrive with the advent of the very controversial issue of same-sex marriage. It was almost two years ago that I decided it was time to write a fact-based primer on gay rights, specifically targeted to right-of-center voters, uh, hence the subtitle of the book to do two things. Number one, to challenge the religious right on its own turf and to show that much of what is derisively or what they derisively call the gay agenda is actually consistent with fundamental Republican and libertarian principles. And number two, to show center-right voters who believe in social tolerance that not only are they not a voice in the wilderness, they actually represent a majority of rank-and-file Republican voters. So the book has three major themes. The first one I just alluded to, that many on the right simply don't understand that properly understood, gay rights are in fact perfectly compatible with fundamental Republican principles of limited government, individual rights, and equal protection of the laws. The essence of the classical liberal or libertarian philosophy is simply one of live and let live. All people are created with certain inalienable rights. The government does not dole out rights depending on what religion you are, what economic class you're in, what your gender is, or theoretically at least, what your sexual orientation is. At least that's the way it's supposed to be. Certainly most libertarians already get that, and I think that's why they have a special obligation to teach fellow conservatives and right-of-center voters why gay and lesbian Americans deserve the same rights as everybody else. 
The second main theme of my book is that because of this constant over-the-top rhetoric that we often hear from the religious right, most people have little understanding of what rank-and-file Republicans actually believe about gay issues. And I think that the conventional wisdom is that all Republicans hate gays, that they are opposed to gay rights, and nothing could be further from the truth. What I discovered in researching the polling data on this topic is that there is, in fact, a huge disconnect between the conventional wisdom that I just mentioned and the reality that a majority of rank-and-file Republicans actually believe and support gay rights, believe in and support gay rights. The reality is this. A majority of rank-and-file Republicans supports nearly all of the major planks in that, quote, gay agenda, unquote, that I mentioned. And I think that's one of the most interesting and important parts of this book. That's the message that needs to go out to all Republicans and conservatives. The loud and hateful voices of the religious right leaders have intimidated and silenced most of those Republicans who believe in social tolerance, and their silence must now end. The fact is that polling data going back at least a decade shows consistent and growing support for expanding gay rights, including relationship recognition by Republicans and conservatives. So the bottom line is this. While the percentages may vary from poll to poll, all of them show a clear majority of Republicans, rank-and-file Republicans, in favor of some kind of legal recognition of gay couples, in opposition to a federal marriage amendment, in favor of open service in our armed forces, and in favor of employment non-discrimination. It is this reality and message of social tolerance on the part of the majority of Republicans that must be spread, and which is why I wrote this book. And I think it must be pounded into the heads of the Republican establishment, which by and large continues to pander to the strident anti-gay groups and leaders because they are the ones who make the most noise. That's the key to their success. It's time for socially tolerant Republicans to come out of the closet, and I think they are doing so in, in ever greater numbers. Finally, the third major theme of the book is the support for gay rights isn't just the right thing to do in my view. It's also the politically smart thing to do. The voters that most often decide elections, after all, are independents. And the Republican Party has seen a progressive, precipitous decline from independents in presidential elections for the past 25 years. Ronald Reagan won them by a two-to-one majority. And yet by 2008, independents went for President Obama by a 52-to-44% margin. Independents, including most libertarians who identify as independents, came back in a big way to Republicans in the 2010 election because it focused almost exclusively on economic issues. And that focus is credited by most political analysts for the big Republican victory that year. What Republicans need to remember about independence is this. They are overwhelmingly pro-gay rights. Like other voters, they don't want to hear anti-gay proposals from candidates because Like most voters, they know gay people as family members or colleagues or friends or neighbors. On every major issue, from repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell, all the way up to providing equal benefits for same-sex couples, independents support gay rights nearly as strongly as Democrats. Even on same-sex marriage, a large majority of independents are in support. George Washington is not only our most celebrated president, He was, at the time of the Revolutionary War, the most trusted by his fellow founding fathers. After all, George Washington was given an army to command. Robert McDonald, a professor of history at the United States Military Academy, 
discussed Washington's restraint at Cato University in July. Washington only rarely uh, would use his army and put it at great risk, but if there was ever a time to do so, it was at the end of 1776. Because if he didn't use his army, if he didn't secure a victory, he might lose his army anyway when people picked up their muskets and walked home. So this is why Washington decides to roll the dice and cross the icy Trenton, and, or Delaware, and land in Trenton and surprise the Hessians. And yet this decision on his part, this decision to pursue a policy of restraint was certainly not universally popular. And there were a number of office holders, there were a number of members of the Continental Congress who grumbled about it very much. One was John Adams. John Adams said Fabius was wise and brave, but zeal and fire and activity and enterprise strike my imagination too much. My toast is a short and violent war. Washington, though, really believed that as the days and months and years passed, the American hand would be strengthened and the British would go weaker. Washington understood that the presence of British soldiers on American soil just inherently worked to their disadvantage. And of course, the way that British soldiers acted the way that they treated the American civilian population certainly made them no friends. When Washington dealt with civilians, if he absolutely had to confiscate animals, he would write a receipt. If he had to stop and encamp on somebody's land, he would ask permission. He did his very, very best to minimize the negative impact that his army had on the local civilian population, wherever he happened to be to respect the rights, including the property rights of civilian Americans. And we should remember too, that this is not only a war between nations, this is not only a war for empire, this is in many respects a civil war. Adams back in 1776 estimated that you could divide the American people into thirds. A third were in favor of independence, a third were loyalists. They wanted to remain part of Great Britain. And a third were people who sat on the fence. They were uh, people who might change their stated affiliation depending upon the circumstances, depending upon the environment. Some of you might remember or be familiar with the first Austin Powers movie. Austin Powers, of course, in 1967 is frozen and put in suspended animation. And 30 years later, he's brought back, he's reanimated. And uh, if 1967, we had been at the height of the Cold War and he had been fighting various baddies, including the communists, in 1997, things had changed remarkably. And so as he is sort of dethawed at British intelligence headquarters, his main contact, a man named Nigel, as he comes through, Nigel is flanked by two other men. One, an American general, okay. The other, a Russian general. And Austin Powers, shocked that a Russian general would be in British intelligence headquarters, thinking that 30 years after his entrance into suspended animation, 
that the Soviets had somehow won the Cold War, Austin's first thought was to try to make nice to the Russian general. He looked at him and he said, hey, comrade, those capitalist pigs will pay for their crimes. <laughs> and Nigel leaned forward and he said, Austin, we won. And then immediately Austin turned to the American general and he said, yay, capitalism. <laughs> A lot of Americans were like that during the course of the war. The British army would enter their city or enter their town and they would pretend to, uh, you know, whistle the tune of God Save the King. As soon as the British army left, especially after the British army left, especially after the British army left in its wake, all sorts of destruction, all sorts of, of mistreatment, horrible mistreatment of the civilian population, especially perhaps the female civilian population, they would start singing the praises not of George III, but of George Washington. A prime example is uh, an event that occurred in 1777 under the, uh, the direction of General John Burgoyne. One of the first strategies that the British possessed was to try to use the Hudson River to separate New England from the rest of the colonies. They thought that the contagion of revolution had begun there and you could sort of amputate New England from the rest of the colonies, isolate New England, and this contagion of liberty would not spread. They did just about everything within their power to secure the Hudson River. And they even, they even worked with Native American tribes and offered to Native American tribes payment for the scalps of patriots. Of course, the Native Americans somehow had difficulty identifying which scalps were patriotic and which scalps were loyalists. And they figured that the British would have the same sort of difficulty. So rather indiscriminately, Native Americans wreaked havoc upon the local populations. And really no one was safe. There was a young woman named Jane McCrae who was engaged to a young loyalist who was fighting alongside the British army. He was a lieutenant and he was there as the Native American was pulling out of his bag all of the scalps of the supposed patriots. He was counting out the money piece by piece. Perhaps he was thinking about his beautiful loyalist fiance, the beautiful Jane McRae known for her distinctive, long, flowing, red locks, went into the bag, reached the Indian, and pulled out the scalp that could only belong to the now butchered, now departed, loyalist woman, Jane McRae. This is a story that we know, because it was told by both sides during the war. It was told by the American side, of course, because the message was clear. It didn't really matter if you were a loyalist or a patriot. The British were willing to do all sorts of things to establish power and domination in America. As late as 1780, Washington was imploring people to repel an enemy from your borders, who not content with hiring mercenaries to lay waste your country, and here he's referring to the Hessians, have now bought savages with the avowed and expressed intention of adding murder to desolation. 
So as time passed, John Adams's initial estimation that the population could be divided into thirds began to change. And there were fewer and fewer loyalists. And there were fewer and fewer people on the fence. And more and more people identified and supported the cause of independence. In other words, the British were terrible at winning hearts and minds. And they also made some military mistakes. After they gave up on their strategy to secure the North by taking over the Hudson River, they turned their attention to the South. And after an initial series of victories, the British began to stumble. And they did something that at West Point, I always tell cadets not to do. Now, note that I'm a civilian. I have no military experience. I rarely uh, think it's appropriate for me to give military advice. But in this instance, I think the advice is sound. If only Lord Cornwallis had taken it, perhaps the war wouldn't have ended when it did. Here's the advice. Don't retreat to a peninsula. <laughs> it's a bad move. It's a bad move, especially if George Washington gets wind of it. And Washington and his French counterpart, General Rochambeau, marched all the way from the outskirts of New York City. Under the cover of darkness, they left the campfires burning so that the British who were watching them, who were spying on them, would think that they were still encamped there. They marched all the way down toward Yorktown. Meanwhile, they got word to the French fleet under Admiral de Gras, he was able to arrive at the Chesapeake Bay to close off the British forces' avenue of retreat by water, while Washington and Rochambeau were able to surround them by land. And finally, the British army surrendered. And if the 1781 Battle of Yorktown is oftentimes thought of as the fighting end of the war, the last major battle. The Treaty of Peace had still not yet been signed. And there was another, perhaps even more consequential battle that remained to be fought. Washington took his army and he relocated it back to the Hudson River Valley, still strategically important with the British occupying New York City, with the British, of course, possessing Canada. He moved his army up there and they encamped in what is now New Windsor, New York, just outside of Newburgh. And armies do what armies oftentimes do when they're not engaged in fighting or when they're not engaged in rigorous training. This army was engaged in complaining. The officers especially were complaining about what would happen to them after the war. Various state governments, the Continental Congress had made different promises about pay and benefits. Many of them wanted half pay for life. They had little hope, however, that after the war ended, the Continental Congress would actually honor their request, that it would make good on the debt that they believed was owed to them. As soon as the peace treaty was signed, they knew the army would probably be dissolved. And many began to have some really dangerous thoughts. There was a lieutenant colonel named Louis Nicola who actually wrote a letter to George Washington saying, you should become the king. You should establish yourself as George I of America. We need your leadership. We need a strong leader like you. And Washington, when he received this letter, he tore it up, he threw it down, 
he said that it filled him with the utmost horror, the notion that he would become the same sort of leader, the same sort of ruler that we had been fighting against. It was the exact opposite purpose of our revolution. It was a war not only for independence from Great Britain, it was a war for independence from tyranny, and he would have no part of it. And so you can imagine how dispirited Washington was when he heard another rumor, this one a very serious one, that some of his senior officers were plotting a possible rebellion, that there at Newburgh they were engaged in a conspiracy to perhaps march the army into the West and leave the United States undefended, thereby removing much leverage that it had at the bargaining table in Paris where treaty, the Treaty of Peace was being negotiated. Others thought about marching the army to Philadelphia, guns loaded, demanding that the Continental Congress agree to their demands. When Washington heard this, he called his men together. He went inside this kind of rough log meeting house and he stood before them. He uh, pulled the notes out of his pocket. He squinted down. He began to read. He, he implored his officers to look with utmost horror and detestation on anyone who wishes, under any specious pretenses, to overturn the liberties of your country. Then he squinted a bit more. He reached into his pocket. He pulled out something that they had never seen Washington in possession of before. No one except his closest advisors his closest aides. Washington put on a pair of, of spectacles, a pair of glasses. Back then, seen as a, a real sign of old age and infirmity. In other words, it was a pathetic sight. And Washington said, gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles, for I have grown not only gray, but almost blind in your service. And at that moment, according to all the people who were there and later wrote about it, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. These grown men who had seen so much bloodshed began to openly weep because they realized that they were about to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. They realized how petty they were. Sure, some had engaged in great battles. Some had made great sacrifices. Some could not be among them because they had made the ultimate sacrifice. But here was George Washington. Here was George Washington who had been with this fight almost since the very beginning. Here was George Washington who had more to lose than anyone else. Here was George Washington, a man who refused to take any pay whatsoever during the course of the war. Here was George Washington who had endured every hardship who had exposed himself to every danger. Here was George Washington, a man literally with bullet holes in his coat. He was so big and it made them feel so small. And that one moment and that simple gesture to whatever degree the Newburgh conspiracy was a viable and serious threat, there it dissipated, there it vanished. Washington, in other words, saved the revolution from going down the path that many other revolutions had gone and many other revolutions would go. Washington was no Cromwell. 
Washington was no Napoleon. Washington was an original. Washington, after the Treaty of Paris was signed, proceeded down to Annapolis, where the Continental Congress had convened, and he tendered his resignation. He said to the assembled body, having now finished the work assigned me, I retire from the great theater of action in bidding an affectionate farewell to this august body under whose orders I have so long acted. I here offer my commission and take leave of all the employments of public life. And then there in an instant, General Washington was a civilian once more. George III had been told that Washington might do this, that Washington might indeed resign his commission when the war came to a conclusion, that he might give up power after having secured liberty. And George III couldn't believe it. According to the story, he scoffed, he laughed. He said, if he does that, if George Washington does that, then truly he is the world's greatest man. And that's what George Washington did. And that's what George Washington was. Johann Norberg's book, Financial Fiasco, details much of the financial crisis since 2008, and now the book is expanded and in paperback, with a new chapter tracking the economic crisis in Europe. The book guides readers through the myriad mistakes of consumers, corporate decision makers, government agencies, and political institutions. Get your copy at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month. <laughs>